Paper Moon Radio Theatre presents Village Wooing by George Bernard Shaw. Third conversation. The same shop three months later. He is now the proprietor of the shop, with she as his hired assistant. The counter has been filled with a desk at the opposite end to the post office section. At this, he sits writing. Morning, boss. Good morning, slave. I haven't begun slaving yet. You have been at it for half an hour. Whatever on earth are you working at so hard? I am making up my balance sheet. Oh, you needn't do that. The accountant's clerk from Salisbury does all that when he makes out the income tax return. You're not expected to do figures in this village. Fancy old Mrs Ward doing such a thing. When I bought this shop from Mrs Ward for an annuity, I found she was much cleverer at figures than I was. She should have been a money lender. She was. She lent a shilling for a penny a week. That must have been between four and five hundred percent per annum. Shylock would have blushed. What's the good of it when you have to give credit at the shop and then lend the customers the money to pay you? Mrs Ward should have gone to Geneva. International finance would have come naturally to her. That's too clever for me. Anyhow, you needn't worry over a balance sheet. The accountant will do all that for you. This is not an accountant's balance sheet. It is a Robinson Crusoe balance sheet. Whatever's that? Crusoe drew up a balance sheet of the advantages and disadvantages of being cast away on a desert island. I am cast away in a village on the Wiltshire Downs. I am drawing up a similar balance sheet. I propose to read it to you as far as I have got. You can remind me of anything I have forgotten. Let's have it. I begin with the credit entries. Things to your own credit, you mean? No, to the credit of village shopkeeping as a way of life. Oh, you are silly, boss. That is a disrespectful remark. As such, it should not be made to a boss by his slave. The understanding on which I raised your salary when I engaged you as my assistant was that our relation should be completely conventional and businesslike on your side. However, I might occasionally forget myself. Very well. You can keep your balance sheet to yourself. I will go on with a telephone call book. You will do nothing of the sort. You will do what I tell you to do. That is what I pay you for. Sit down again. Now, listen. Item. I have sharpened my faculties and greatly improved in observation and mathematics. Couldn't you put it into shorter words? What does it mean? It means that formerly I always took what money was given me without condescending to count it or attempting to calculate it. I can now both calculate and count quite rapidly. Formerly I made no distinctions between grades of butter and eggs. To me an egg was an egg. Butter was butter. I now make critical distinctions of the greatest subtlety and value them in terms of money. I am forced to admit that the shopkeeper is enormously superior to the Marco Polo man, and that I have learnt more in three months in this shop than I learnt in three years at Oxford. I can't believe that about the learning, but see how your manners have improved. My manners? Yes. Well, on that ship you hadn't a word to throw a dog, and if anyone came near you, you shrank up into yourself like a hedgehog, afraid that they didn't belong to your class and wanted to speak to you without an introduction. 
Now it's a pleasure to hear you say, Good morning, and what can I do for you today, Mrs. Burrell? And have you noticed the cauliflowers today, Mum? Not a touch of frost on them. And sparrowgrass, very good today, my lady, if you would be wanting some. I positively deny that I have ever in my life called a sparrowgrass sparrowgrass to an educated customer. Of course, when people are too ignorant to know the names of what they eat, that is another matter. Well, anyhow, your manners have improved, haven't they? I don't know. I know that they are no longer disinterested and sincere. No more they never used to be. Never easy with anybody. Now you're a hail fellow well met, as you might say, with everybody. The world's become a world of customers. Oh, let me write that down. Manners will never be universally good until every person is every other person's customer. You're not a real shopkeeper yet, boss. All you want to do is find something clever to write. Well, why not? Find enough clever things to say and you are a prime minister. Write them down and you are a Shakespeare. Yes, but who wants to be a prime minister or a Shakespeare? You've got to make a living. Well, am I not making a living? I am no poorer than when I bought the shop. But if the money goes out as fast as it comes, you can't save anything. I loathe saving. Turns human nature sour. Cast your bread upon the waters, and it will return to you after many days. And how are you to live for the many days with nothing to eat? I don't know. One does, somehow. Stop asking questions and let us get on with the balance sheet. I speak for your good. Oh, the most offensive liberty one human being can possibly take with another. What business is it of yours? If you won't think for yourself, somebody else must think for you. It's my business as much as yours. Oh, indeed. Who does this shop belong to? I mean, to whom does this shop belong? I get my living out of it, don't I? If it shuts up, what becomes of me? Well, if you come to that, what becomes of me? You can get another job. I very greatly doubt whether anyone would give me one. <sighs> Can you not be content with the fact that the shop is making enough to support two people? Aye, but suppose it had to support three people? Why, suppose? It hasn't. That's all. It's not all. If you marry a stranger, there will be three. And what about the children? The remedy is simple. I shall not marry. You don't know. Neither do you. Yes, I do. You have married once, and you will marry twice. Somebody will snap you up. You are that sort of man. If a woman snaps me up, she must take the consequences. She must assist in the shop, and you will get the sack. Oh, you are tiresome. But you see my point at all events. No, what point? Well, that it's really cheaper to keep a wife than to pay an assistant, let alone that you don't have to live in a single life. You can get rid of an assistant if she doesn't suit. You can't get rid of a wife. If people thought that way, they'd never get married. Precisely. In this life, you have to take chances. I have taken them and escaped. You won't escape here. We don't hold with bachelors here. You can't do without a general shop here, nor a post office. While I command both, I'm in an impregnable strategic position. Well, I don't like to say it, but people are beginning to talk. Beginning? When did they ever stop? Oh, there's no use talking to you. Not the slightest. Oh, well then, take a month's notice. A month's notice? Yes, a month's notice. A month's notice because I refuse to marry some ridiculous village maiden or illiterate widow with whom I could not hold a moment's conversation. Wives are not for conversation. That's for visitors. You've had plenty of conversation with me. Leave yourself out of this conversation, Oh, please. very well. A month's notice. Don't say that again. Utter nonsense. What have you to complain of? You're quite well off here. 
I purposely pay you ten pounds a year more than you could get anywhere else. Why? What do you mean, why? Why do you pay me ten pounds more than you could get another assistant for? Heaven only knows. Oh, I'll go this very day. I'll go this very minute. You can keep my month. You don't know when you're well off. You're selfish. I don't wonder your wife died. Did she die mad? As a matter of fact, she did. I am one of those unlucky men who draw the black chances in the lottery of marriage. Oh, I didn't know. I didn't indeed. I was only joking. I wouldn't have said it for the world if I'd known. Never mind. I, I know you didn't mean it. By the way, I, I made an inconsiderate remark which hurt you. I did not intend that. I should have told you seriously that I pay you ten pounds more than the market rate because I value your services in the shop and wish to offer you every inducement to stay here permanently. Ten pounds extra to stay all my life here as a single woman? Not necessarily. You can get married if you wish. Who to? To whom? Oh, anyone. Anyone in the village is good enough for me, but nobody in the village is good enough for you. Is that it? Don't lose your temper again. I will if I like. And if you knew how near I was to putting a couple of extra words in, you'd perhaps realise that a woman wants something more in life than a job and a salary. I know that perfectly well. There's one thing we're all out for when we are young. And what is that, pray? Trouble, adventure, hardship, care, disappointment, doubt, misery, danger and death. Not me, thank you. All I want is a husband and the usual consequences. The same thing. Marriage is the village form of all these adventures. Why don't you take a more cheerful view of life? I have learned not to expect too much from life. That is the secret of real cheerfulness, because I am always getting agreeable surprises instead of desolating disappointments. Well, your second marriage may be an agreeable surprise, mightn't it? What exactly do you mean by my second marriage? I have only been married once. I mean, I have been married only once. Well, look here. Straight now. Is there any man in the village that would be suitable to me now that I've got used to you? My dear, men are all alike. You mean it will make no difference to me who I marry? Very little. And women are all alike too, aren't they? What are you getting at? If it doesn't matter who anybody marries, then it doesn't matter who I marry, and it doesn't matter who you marry. Whom, not who? Oh, speak English. You're not on the telephone now. What I mean is that if it doesn't matter to me, it doesn't matter to you either. You admit then that it doesn't matter? No, I don't. It's a lie. Oh. Don't owe me. All men are not alike to me. There are men, and good nice men too, that I wouldn't let touch me. But when I saw you on the ship, I said to myself, I could put up with him. Not at all. You told me just now that you said something quite different. I believe you really said something much more rapturous. Being rather a futile sort of person, I attract vigorous women like you. When you looked at me out of the corner of your eye, you looked at all the women out of the corner of your eye in spite of your keeping yourself so much to yourself, did you never say, I could put up with her? No. I said, damn that woman, she won't stop talking to me and interrupting my work. Well, I tell you we were made for one another. It mayn't be as plain to you as to me yet, but if it's plain to me, then there must be something in it, for I'm never wrong when I see a thing quite plain. 
I don't believe you'd ever have bought this shop and given up being a gentleman if I hadn't been here. Now that you mention it, I believe that is true. You were one of the amenities of the estate. Well, I might be one of the amenities of the estate of holy matrimony, mightn't I? Take care. You may find what you are trying to do easier than you think. About five percent of the human race consists of positive, masterful, acquisitive people like you, obsessed with some passion which they must gratify at all hazards. The rest let them have their own way because they have neither the strength nor the courage to resist, or because the things the masterful ones want seem trifling beside the starry heavens and the destiny of man. I'm not one of the masterful ones. I'm not worth marrying. Any woman could marry me if she took trouble enough. That's just what I'm afraid of. If I let you out of my sight for a month, I might find you married to someone else at the end of it. Well, I'm taking no chances. I don't set up to be masterful. I don't like selfish, uppish, domineering people any more than you do. But I must and will have you, and that's all about it. Well, you already have me as an employer. And you are independent of me, and can leave me if you are not satisfied. How can I be satisfied when I can't lay my hands on you? I work for you like a slave for a month on end, and I would have to work harder as your wife than I do now. But there comes time when I want to get hold of you in my arms, every bit of you. And when I do, I'll give you something better to think about than the starry heavens, as you call them. You'll find that you have senses to gratify as well as fine things to say. <laughs> senses? You don't know what you're talking about. Look around you. Here in this shop, I have everything that gratifies the senses: apples, onions, and acid drops, pepper and mustard, cosy comforters, and hot water bottles. Through the window, I delight my eyes with the old church and marketplace built in the days when beauty came naturally from the hands of medieval craftsmen. My ears are filled with delightful sounds, from the cooing of doves and the humming of bees to the wireless echoes of Beethoven and Elgar. My nose can gloat over our sack of fresh lavender or our special sixpenny eau de Cologne when the smell of rain on dry earth is denied me. My senses are saturated with satisfactions of all sorts, but when I'm full to the neck with onions and acid drops, when I'm so fed up with medieval architecture that I'd rather die than look at another cathedral, when all I desire is rest from sensation, not more of it, what use will my senses be to me if the starry heavens still seem no more than a senseless avalanche of lumps of stone and wisps of gas? If the destiny of man holds out no higher hope to him than the final extinction and annihilation of so mischievous and miserable a creature, we don't bother about all that in the village. Yes, you do. Oh, our bestseller here is Old Moore's Almanac, and next to it comes Napoleon's Book of Fate. Old Mrs. Ward would never have sold the shop to me if she had not become persuaded that the Day of Judgment is fixed for the seventh of August next. Oh, I don't believe such nonsense. What's it all got to do with you and me? You are inexperienced. You don't know. You are the dupe of thoughtless words like sensuality, sensuousness, and all the rest of the twaddle of the materialists. I am not a materialist. I am a poet, and I know that to be in your arms will not gratify my senses at all. 
As a matter of mere physical sensation, you will find the bodily context to which you are looking forward neither convenient nor decorous. Oh, don't talk like that. You mustn't let yourself think about it like that. You must always let yourself think about everything. And you must think about everything as it is, not as it is talked about. Your second-hand gabble about gratifying my senses is only your virgin innocence. We shall get quite away from the world of sense. We shall light up for one another a lamp in the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Life, and the lamp will make its veil transparent. Aimless lumps of stone blundering through space will become stars singing in their spheres. Our dull, purposeless village existence will become one irresistible purpose and nothing else. An extraordinary delight and an intense love will seize us. It will last hardly longer than the lightning flash which turns the black night into infinite radiance. It will be dark again before you can clear the light out of your eyes. But you will have seen. And forever after you will think about what you have seen and not gabble catchwords invented by the wasted virgins that walk in darkness. It is to give ourselves this magic moment that we feel that we must and shall hold one another in our arms. And when the moment comes, the world of the senses will vanish, and for us there will be nothing ridiculous, nothing uncomfortable, nothing unclean, nothing but pure paradise. Well, I am glad you take a nice view of it. For now I come to think of it, I never could bear to be nothing more to a man than a lollipop. But you mustn't expect too much. I shall expect more than you have ever dreamt of giving, in spite of the boundless audacity of women. What great men would ever have been married if the female nobodies who snapped them up had known the enormity of their own presumption? I believe they all thought they were going to refine, to educate, to make real gentlemen of their husbands. What do you intend to make of me, I wonder? Well, I have made a decent shopkeeper of you already, haven't I? But you needn't be afraid of my not appreciating you. I want a fancy sort of husband, not a common villager that any woman could pick up. I shall be proud of you. And now I've nailed you, I wonder at my own nerve. So do I. <laughs> I'm not a bit like that, you know, really. Something above me and beyond me drove me on. That's why I know it will be all right. <laughs> Don't be afraid. I can't make a fine speech about it like you. But it will be all right. I promise you that. Very well. Go round to the rectory and put up the bands. And tell the rector's wife that we got in some prime artichokes this morning. She's fond of artichokes. You are sure you feel happy about it? I don't know what I feel about it. Go and do as you were told and don't ask ridiculous questions. Mama, please. Oh, an order. Thanks very much. Oh, yes, we have some very fine artichokes just in this morning. Thanks very much. They shall be sent round directly. Oh, 
And there's something else. Are you there? Sorry to detain you. Could I speak to the rector? Yes, it's rather particular. It's about bands. 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 B for beauty, A for audacity, two N's for nonsense and S for singing. Yes, bands. That's right. Who are the what? Oh, the parties. Of course. Well, it's... That was Village Wooing by George Bernard Shaw. She was played by Elaine Noon. He was played by Tony Turner.